This week I saw an image of uh, Punxsutawney Phil. You know how it goes. If Punxsutawney Phil sees his shadow, you get what? Six more weeks of winter. Yeah, that's right. But the image I saw was a little bit different. It had Punxsutawney Phil, all right, but the text underneath it read, if Punxsutawney Phil sees his shadow, you get six more weeks of your pastor's sermon series. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, in a, we're in a series we're calling On Mission. We're thinking together about the mission that God has given his church. It's not just the Blues Brothers who are on a mission from God, right? It's all of us. And while the series only has a couple more weeks, um, we want, uh, we want to be sure that, 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 that we all know together how, how we're, it's our hope and prayer that this mission, that this sermon series would inspire and inform our life together. It would inform not only what we do here Sunday, but through the week and as we continue to live and to grow into a Christ-centered life in God's family. So much has changed over the past couple of years. So much has happened in our lives, but we want to be crystal clear on what we're doing here. Uh, we exist to invite all people to grow into a Christ-centered life in God's family. What are we doing? We are not arguing or arm-twisting. We are inviting. Who are we inviting? Well, we're, we're inviting all people, everyone, anyone whom God places in our path who's yet to respond to the good news of Jesus. And what are we inviting them to? Not just a worship service, not just a Bible study, not just to join a church, we're inviting all people to a new life, a transformed life, a life that's centered in Christ. Throughout the scriptures, we see that life is meant to move in three directions, up to God in worship, in to discipleship with community, and out in mission to the world. And, and so I want us to think about these three directions of a life that's centered in Christ. Before we finish this sermon series, before Punxsutawney Phil tells us we can move on to something else, I want to pause and to think about what we mean when we say those three things. Up to God, into discipleship, and out in mission. And so for the next three weeks, we're engaging the same exact text, the same eight verses, three weeks in a row. Because I want us to see how central these dimensions and directions are in the life of Christ so that they might be central for our lives in Christ. We're in Luke chapter 6 this morning, starting in verse 12, reading through verse 19. Luke tells us, One of those days, Jesus went out on a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Now, pause there for just a moment. Uh, disciples are those who come and who sit at the feet of a rabbi. Apostles are those who are sent out with the message of that rabbi. So when Jesus calls his disciples to them, it's not just so those disciples can come and sit at his feet and learn from him and then say, well, that was a really good sermon. Thanks, Jesus. I'm going to go see if I can catch the second half of the game. Those 12 are called from the larger community of 72 in Luke's gospel so that they might learn from him and they might go out from him with his message. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, 
Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, we'll learn more about him next week, really fun guy, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Notice, they want to hear him and be healed by him. To hear and be healed. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and all the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Father, as we have been gathered by your spirit around your word this morning, would you open our eyes? Would you open our ears? Would you soften our hearts to the living word, Jesus Christ, to your written word, the Holy Scriptures, and now to your preached word? That as we think together about what these eight verses might mean for us, that your word would not return void. May the meditations of our hearts, may my words be acceptable unto your sight this day, O God. It's in the name of Jesus and for the sake of his inbreaking kingdom that we pray. Amen. So, we read just eight verses. Did you hear it? Jesus looks up, he leans in, and then he leads out. All three just eight verses. Time and time again, this is the rhythm of Jesus' life, and it is to be the rhythm of our lives as well, if we want to live life centered in him. I love that Luke mentions the mountain. He didn't have to tell us about the mountain, but he tells us about the mountain. He doesn't only tell us what Jesus did or how long he was gone. Jesus also, Luke also tells us where Jesus went, right? Uh, we've all heard that phrase, a mountaintop experience, right? And for good reason. Mountains give us a new perspective, elevated from the ground below. Throughout the scriptures, mountains are considered holy. They're, they're thin places where, where heaven and earth collide. They're places of revelation. We see it time and time again throughout the Bible. We see it in other religious traditions as well. Mountains are meaningful. Think just about the ministry of Jesus for a moment. Um, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, right? And we see that Jesus is a teacher. As he comes down from that mountain, he, he meets a man born with leprosy. And, and there we see on that mountain, Jesus is not only a teacher, but also a healer. On another mountain, Jesus feeds the 4,000. So, so we see Jesus is not only a teacher, not only a healer, uh, Jesus is also a miracle worker. Jesus even cares about the people who've forgotten to pack a lunch. Right? It's like Janae was sharing with us a few moments ago. Jesus has compassion on the people, like her mom in that Wendy's drive-thru. Jesus has compassion. Jesus is interruptible. Then Jesus takes Peter and James and John to another mountain, and here they hear a voice from heaven that says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So Jesus is not only a teacher. He's not only a healer. He's not only a miracle worker. 
on that mountain, we learn that this Jesus, this same Jesus, is the very Son of God. And remember, being a son in the first century included and implied all the rights and privileges of the Father. That's why Jesus tells us, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So there's a a number of these different mountaintop experiences, the the teaching and the healing and the performing miracles. And in the midst of them all, in the Gospels, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly getting away from the disciples by himself, going up on a mountain alone. But Jesus' mountaintop experience, Jesus' going up, Jesus' looking up is not only for him. You see, Jesus goes up the mountain to prepare for the valley. Jesus goes up to the high places to prepare for the level ones. His time alone on a mountain is preparation for his teaching and his healing and his working miracles. There is an intentional progression here. This is no mistake. Uh, Looking up to God prompts Jesus' leaning in to community and his going out to the world. There's a progression, there's a pattern, and even Jesus, notice this, even Jesus, the Son of God, even Jesus follows this progression, even Jesus follows this pattern. And if Jesus, for somehow, some reason, if Jesus, God in the flesh, needs to follow this pattern, this progression, how much more do we? If Jesus needed to get away and to look up in connection and communion to God the Father, how much more do we? Especially now. Now more than ever. You see, these days, our gaze is not naturally drawn up to God, is it? If we're honest, our gaze is often drawn down to our devices, Right? Our gaze is drawn down to our devices, down to news and noise and nonsense. I don't know what your news app looks like on your phone, but there are things that the news app wants me to read that I have no business reading and has no bearing on my life at all. At best, we want to engage what's happening in the world for the sake of God. But, but I heard someone say this week at the National Gathering. It's a great place to pick up quotes for your sermon that you haven't finished yet. (laughs) Someone said this week, we can be in the world for the sake of God. Or we can be in God for the sake of the world. Those are two different things, aren't they? We can be in the world for the sake of God, doing all the things that we believe God has called us to do, and we can be drawn down into the news and the noise and the nonsense, and this is what God says, or or we can be in God for the sake of the world. That's what Jesus does. That's why Jesus, even the Son of God, God in the flesh, gets away so he can be in God for the sake of the world. See, um, without first looking up, we are ill-prepared to lean in or, or to lead out. If we allow our lives to be drawn down to our devices, uh, into the distractions, into the divisions of our day, we very well might be in the world for God. But we will not be in God for the world. 
and the ways in which we will live on mission will be much more challenging and much less fruitful. This past fall, our life group engaged a book called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose in an Age of Destruction. Excuse me, Distraction, but Destruction too, yeah. Um, <laughs> habits of Purpose in an Age of Distraction. Um, it included four daily habits and four weekly habits to form us in this world of news and noise. The very first habit written about in this book was called Kneeling Prayer, where apparently you, you, you kneel and, and, then, and then you pray. The author of the book um, tells us that this is a, a keystone habit, that kneeling prayer is the first domino in the line, the one habit you need to build on the other seven habits that follow. It's like, um, it's like that great U2 lyrics, if you want to kiss the sky, you better learn how to kneel, right? If you want to look up to God, you better bend your knees first. I was less than excited about kneeling in prayer, but then it got worse. One of the most astute and authentic people in our life group had a very interesting insight. He said, you know, I'm going to need someone to keep me accountable to this kneeling in prayer. New habits are very hard to form. They're very easy to break, but very hard, hard to, to form. We've seen how easily habits can break, like when we aren't able to gather in worship on Sundays and how tough it is to come back, right? New habits are hard to form. He said, if I don't have an accountability partner, I will just read about this and I won't actually do it. So after he asked the question in our life group, who will be my accountability partner, we all silently looked around the table at one another. <laughs> well, who's going to be his accountability partner? And I didn't want to be his accountability partner. I just wanted to read the book and discuss it and then go home and go to sleep but no one else raised their hand. And now I'm sitting there, the pastor, <laughs> feeling like maybe I should actually join him in practicing the contents of the book that I foolishly recommended. <laughs> I hadn't read it before I recommended it, and now all of a sudden I've got to kneel in prayer? What are you talking about? It's like that song we sang a few moments ago. If you gladly chose surrender, so will I. If Jesus gladly chose surrender, if Jesus spent all night in prayer on the mountaintop looking up to God his Father, how much more do we need it? And so, every morning, when we rolled out of bed, we would kneel in prayer. Ooh. I've got hardwood floors that have been in that house since 1957, and they don't have a lot of give to them, if you know what I mean. But every morning, we would kneel in prayer. We would get down on our knees, and we would kneel. And we would pray that though we did not know what the day held for us, we knew that God went before us. And so we asked that God would be with us, that he would give us love for all those with whom we would come in contact. And in the middle of the day, we would do the same. We would pause and we would kneel and, and we would pray that though the day had not gone the way we had hoped it would, that God would continue to be with us. That he would give us love with all those with whom we'd come in contact. 
And every night before we went to bed, we would kneel again in prayer. And we would admit that we were futile little creatures on God's majestic planet and that we were exhausted and that our bodies needed rest and our minds needed to rest in the love of God every day, three times a day. And we would text each other just a little check mark. I knelt in prayer, I knelt in prayer, I knelt in prayer every day, three times a day learning how to bend our knees that we might kiss the sky, that we might look up to God in worship. We didn't have the phrase then, but we were yearning for something more than being in the world for God. We wanted to be in God for the world. And there were times when I was on my knees that I had a lot to say, and then there were times when I was on my knees when I said very little, maybe even nothing at all. Have you ever had a prayer like that? It reminds me of the time when Mother Teresa was asked by an interviewer, um, Interviewer said, when you pray, what do you say to God? And she said, when I pray, I don't talk. I simply listen. The interviewer thought he understood what she was saying, and so he said, oh, okay. Well, then, what does God say to you when you pray? And Mother Teresa replied, oh, uh, God doesn't talk. He simply listens. <laughs> and there was a long silence as it goes from the, from the interviewer, and and he was a bit confused, and he wasn't sure what to ask next. And so finally, Mother Teresa broke the silence. She said, if you can't understand the meaning of what I've just said, I'm so sorry. But there is no way I can explain it any better. And if you've had moments like that where there was nothing to say, only to listen, and God had nothing to say, but he only listened, then you know exactly what Mother Teresa is describing. My wife, Cassie, is patient and kind and generous and caring. To truly know Cassie is to love her. She is such a gift to me and to our family. And because she is kind and generous and caring and compassionate, she has never asked me whether I knelt in prayer that morning, but I guarantee you there are times that she's thought, oh, Curtis has not knelt in prayer this morning. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Curtis missed the midday kneeling prayer. Curtis missed that opportunity to look up to God. Um, but to live a life centered in Christ, we are called to do the same as Christ. To look up from the distractions and the divisions and our devices to God. We have never been more distracted by our devices. We have never been more divided. We have never been more prone to looking down. Oh, how we need that vision of Isaiah. Did you hear those words Beth read for us a few moments ago? That vision of Isaiah? Within our season of social distancing and streaming church from home, looking up to God in worship has become another option among many, another thing we can do with our devices. And I'm not being critical for those of you who are streaming from home, wanting to be safe and secure from COVID. I'm not criticizing. I'm just trying to say that over the past two years, what we did in worship and looking up to God became something we could do with our device if we wanted to do with our device. Or we could have worship on our device here and the game on our device there. And so looking up to God in worship, we have never been more distracted and divided, even within our own soul. Oh, how we need Isaiah's vision. 
how we need to be reminded that like Isaiah saw, after King Uzziah dies, remember King Uzziah was on the throne for 52 years. Can you imagine the political turmoil after he dies on the throne? But he's not on the throne. Who's on the throne? God's on the throne, right? That's Isaiah's vision. How we need to be like those seraphs that filled that temple, calling to one another, look up. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We need to even be willing to text each other those check marks, right? How we need to see a vision of God by looking up and saying not woe, but woe. Woe is me. The vision of that temple does not sound very Presbyterian, does it? It sounds more like a heavy metal concert, let's be honest. The room is filling with smoke, everything's shaking. I mean, sometimes it happens when Bonnie really lays into a good pedal. But it's not Presbyterian. It is not decently and in order, is it? No. But it is worship. Isaiah meets God there. Woe to me, Isaiah says. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Oh, how we need to receive that coal from the altar to cleanse us that God might send us. Oh, how we need to look up that we might lean in and lead out to a hurting world in need of hope. That we might be in God for the sake of the world. Jesus does not only go up to the mountain to teach or to heal or to perform miracles or even to pray. There's another time Jesus goes up on a mountaintop. And as we come to this table this morning... We remember that other mountaintop where Jesus was crucified and killed for the sins of the world. He gladly chose surrender for your sins and mine. He took our place, he took our guilt, he took our shame upon himself that we might freely look up, that we might freely learn how to kneel. And on that mountain, we see Jesus is not only teacher, he's not only miracle worker, he's not only healer, Jesus is savior. This Jesus reveals to us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus provides the way for us to look up. And like the coal taken with tongs from the altar, may the elements of this table, may the bread and the cup be like that coal that touched Isaiah's lips. May it remind us, may it recall for us the grace of our Savior, that we might sit at his feet, that we might go out into a world in need of his hope. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for this Jesus, who gladly chose surrender, May we do the same. God, we've never been more distracted or divided, looking down at our devices. We've never needed more to look up to you. So draw our gaze upward, we pray. We pray in the name of Jesus. Open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts through the elements of this meal that we might be and even more so become your people this day. Amen.